In this interview, I'm once again joined by Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, research professor at the University of Arizona, assistant director at the Center for Consciousness Studies, and co-director of the SEMA Lab with Shinzen Young. In this episode, Dr. Sanguinetti reveals his personal secrets for optimal brain function and cognitive high performance that enable him to perform at his intellectual best. Jay also gives us deep dive phenomenological reports of accessing boundaryless states of meditation, experiencing the unraveling of his self-identification, and how self-administered brain stimulation, in tandem with Dr. Jeffrey Martin's Finders course and close one-on-one -on -one coaching with Shinzen Young, radically expedited these processes. Jay also shares how his spiritual epiphanies have transformed his communication strategies with his staff and mentees, and explains the power of vulnerability in optimizing decision-making. So without further ado, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. Viewers and listeners of the podcast will be familiar with you from the ongoing a trialogue series now uh, occasionally adding special guests between yourself, uh, Shinzen Young, your collaborator, and Columbia neuroscience student Chelsea Fasano. And we recently had Lee Brasington, uh, the meditation teacher, on as a as a guest. This has been such a tremendous series. But also, uh, we saw the man behind uh, the mystery of uh, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti in our uh, last solo episode, which I'll link below. That was very fascinating indeed. Taking a look, actually candid look into your own journey, both as a practitioner and as a scientist, really remarkable indeed. One of the things that I often reflect on, I'm, I've joked before that whenever I have these conversations or I, uh, with, with people like you, or I sit in on the trialogue with Shinzen and Chelsea and yourself, I always get a, a few more IQ points, just, just by osmosis, I get IQ by osmosis. And I think of you guys in certain ways, like mental athletes, in, in a sense, scientists, uh, also as you are a deep meditation practitioner. And athletes, physical athletes, sports athletes, they have all sorts of uh, their lives in a way dedicated to their optimizing of their physical performance, many of them, uh, with periodization of their training, uh, certain rituals and habits and so on that are would be foreign to a, a, someone who's not an athlete. And so I sort of sometimes wonder about somebody with your um, in your profession, uh, who's also a high level neuroscience researcher and also a high level practitioner of meditation. What are your protocols or practices? around maximizing your cognitive performance or your work output and so on. Uh, I'm just curious about that. The sort of, if we were to follow you around uh, for a week or something like that, uh, what are the non-negotiables and aspects of your routine uh, that are specifically geared towards optimal cognitive function? Mm, that's a great question. Um, and it's uh, something I feel like I've only mastered very recently. So I just turned 38. Uh, yesterday, uh, two days ago, on the 22nd, on the fall equinox. And, you know, I'd say it's only been in the past five years or so that I figured out how to get the right habits in place to, to help me optimize. One of the most fundamentally important things is sleep, having a consistent sleep practice. Um, I say this partly because my significant other, uh, Dr. Natalie Bryant, is a sleep scientist, and so I live with someone who's getting on me all the time about sleep hygiene, but um, really having a consistent wake-up time, particularly, so having a rhythmicity to your wake-up time um, is super crucial for setting both your cognitive performance, but also your mental energy, um, your metabolism, uh, your hunger, things like that as well. 
And so I think for me, it's, it's really these rhythms, these habitual rhythms that are underneath my life. And uh, we may have talked about this in the last podcast. When I was an undergraduate, I lived on a little island called Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina. And, you know, that was the only other time in my life where I felt like there was this rhythmicity to my life, um, mostly because of when you live on the ocean, when you live on an island, the, the sort of rhythms of nature just sort of soak into you in a sense. And uh, that was the other time in my life where I, I was 20 to 24, where I really felt like that rhythmicity was setting the rhythm of my life. Um, so I'd say sleep is really important. Um, healthy diet is also as fundamentally important as sleep. Uh, healthy greens, healthy vegetables, you know, things like that in the diet. Um, I exercise a couple times a week and I actually walk to campus. I walk about a mile and a half each way um, from my home to work. And uh, on that walk, I either call family, so I connect with people that I love, um, or I do a walking meditation. And that's a pretty much non-negotiable that has to happen each day. Um, and so really those are the three or four things, healthy sleep, um, connecting with family, taking a walking meditation, exercise, and uh, a good diet. And then on top of that, I try to get in a meditation <laughs> when I can, <laughs> uh, which is also really important. That's very interesting. I'd like to ask you a little bit more actually about attention, but seeing as you brought it up, what, what is your meditation practice these days? Do you have a, a typical routine or is it quite variable? I know you have very deep experience in, in many techniques. So I'm curious, um, if you don't mind, what your these days practices uh, oriented around? Sure. Um, I, I have a sort of hodgepodge of different practices that I try, partly because uh, I just talked about the importance of, of having rhythms in your life. But with meditation practice, in my own experience, it's been really important to switch it up um, here and there because I get sort of locked in certain practices and I feel like there's something in my body or my mind that needs to get worked on. And if I don't switch up the practice, I can start bypassing some of that stuff. Um, so right now, what I tend to do, if I'm not doing the walking meditation, um, if I'm sitting on the pillow, I tend to start with a loving kindness practice. Um, I tend to have an anxious disposition. And so loving kindness, especially self-compassion, uh, really helps to center some of that stuff and settle it down. So I do a simple sort of mantra based, you know, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering, may you be healthy. Uh, and these days it's may you be free of COVID, of course. Um, then I tend to do a Goenka body scan. I, I never really liked the body scans until I took um, Jeffrey Martin's finders course. And uh, something happened to me during that course where the body scan really helped. And so I, I like it now because I can really do a fine grain sort of attentional slicing you know, you kind of start with the feeling of the hair on the top of your head and you try to move your attention right down to one, one millimeter below. I think that's uh, just kind of fun, almost academically. I can kind of see how, how fine grained my attention can get. Um, then recently I've been doing, um, I guess what you would call like an open monitoring practice. I've, I've been really getting sort of lost in the not lost, sorry. I've been getting really fascinated with the loss of boundaries. And that's been sort of new in my practice where the little voice gets really silent, this sort of even um, point of view can kind of dissolve. 
And uh, I'm just paying attention to whatever types of patterns are emerging inside or outside. The distinction kind of goes away. Um, some people might call that sort of a pre-non-dual practice or something. I'm not claiming I'm completely non-dual there, but I'm moving in that direction. And that's been a nice place to be because it, it feels um, quite like a refuge to go there. Like there's nothing's going to get me if, I, <laughs> if I'm in that space. Um, and then I tend to end again with a sort of grounding practice. So I, I come back in the body and I either do another loving kindness practice or just more of like feeling my feet on the ground, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. I really feel like um, moving through various practices is quite effective for me because uh, there's a lot of parts to Jay uh, from body to mind, to the talking voice, to the, all the unconscious crap that's telling me to be worried about the world. And I do feel like when you move through these different practices, you're sort of letting each of those processes settle, come back in the body and be sort of centered. Um, and that, that's been quite effective for me. Now, of course, on top of that, I also have Shenzhen uh, who lives four blocks away from me. So if I really get, feel like I get stuck in my practice, I just get to call Shenzhen, which is such a pleasure. And um, what's amazing about working one-on-one with Shenzhen is you report to him exactly what it's like. So if I'm doing a Goenka body scan, I will say, here's what it's like, and here's where I'm getting stuck. I'm getting stuck right when I get to my heart. <laughs> and Shenzhen will say, oh, interesting. Here's a practice to try. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of where this concept comes from. Shenzhen's always telling me, you know, based on what's happening right now in my practice, here's something else to try next to kind of get you through that wall or get you through that hump. And so that's been a, a total, you know, I don't know what word to use. We'll use the word blessing because it's been it's been amazing to have someone like that in my life to help me through. Mm. Wow. And that boundarylessness, the exploration you're having, that fascination with um, the softening or perhaps even disappearing of boundaries, is that something that you'd associate with a, a Janic state? You said, uh, I've heard you say elsewhere that you're able to get to the third jhana for example you said that in our previous interview and or is that something that uh, related to what happened to you on the finders course uh the jhana it, it's similar to jhana because i tend to have a lot of joy exploding out of every part of my body for for a bit when when the boundlessness happens but the real joy is when it settles and that that's a bit hard for me because i have this uh energetic disposition where I kind of bounce between low and high energy very quickly. And I tend to, I tend to bypass the middle part. And, you know, part of my practice is letting that sort of energy settle in the middle and, and, and just being there, just experiencing that without having to bounce between the two. And uh, so in that sense, it's a bit like going, I guess, through the stages of the jhanas. But uh, for whatever reason, I think because I'm so energetically up and down, um, the early jhanas are relatively easy for me to experience. And it was really interesting to hear Lee Brasington talk about the left shoulder. And he said that the vagus nerve innervates there. I think Lee said that, or maybe someone else said this. But the first time I ever experienced the first jhana, um, I think I was reading something, somebody was explaining a jhana practice. And they said to focus, like really get concentrated. So just concentrate, 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 fix that concentration. Once you do that and it's stable, then you move your attention to something that feels good. And it just was natural for me to move it to my left shoulder. And I always thought it was just a random accident. But it turns out that's where part of the vagus nerve innervates. 
And if I can just feel right at the tip of my left shoulder, I just explode in joy. <laughs> There's like this jumping off point. And I always thought there was something special about me, of course, and the little voice comes on. Oh, I'm so special. I can get into the jhana. I figured it out on my own. And when Lee said that, you know, oh, it's just the vagus nerve there in your neck, um, in your shoulder, you know, it kind of, it was nice. It was a nice ego settling for me. It was like, okay, I'm not special. Anyone can do that. <laughs> That's very interesting. Um, are you willing to talk about what happened to you on the finder's course? Uh, sure. I love talking about it. Oh, great. Okay. Well, maybe you should say a little bit about what the Finders course is. From what I understand, uh, Jeffrey Martin has put together an intensive multiple month program and uh, one goes into it and each uh, is periodized to various different techniques, I think up to two hours of practice a day. And it's sort of tailored in some way by Jeffrey's research uh, to produce these. Um, now, what's the uh, uh, word that special word he uses for the experiences? I forget now. Uh, PNSE, persistent non-symbolic experience. Yeah, it's a, it's quite an academic term. I like the term actually a lot. Yeah. Um, it's what Jeffrey came up with, I believe, in his dissertation project. He was uh, working on, um, you know, extraordinary states, enlightenment, so non-duality. You can go down the list and talk about all of these different states that may or may not be pointing towards the same thing. And he was trying to. Um, quantify them in a psychological way, asking, is there a way to cluster these different experiences and come up with a sort of framework? And so he did that. You can go read his dissertation. It's really fascinating, actually. Yeah, so Jeffrey, um, he's a really good friend of mine. And you know, he, he was one of the first to do a full dissertation on a topic like this and, and get it published and do a, a really good psychological assessment of what happens? What are the different stages? And, you know, you can ask questions like, does everyone go through the same stages? Is there some kind of evolutionary biological set that happens, sort of constraints that forces people? Or do different people experience different things on meditation retreats and, uh, you know, ayahuasca experiences and psychedelic experiences and things like that? And what he basically found is that people tend to cluster into four what he called locations. Now you can debate about whether you should call it a location because, you know, Jeffrey was trying to say that one is not better than the other. There's no ethics, you know, there's no should that you should give here. It's just people fall into these different locations. And he gave one through four, and then there's a couple other ones that he tends not to talk about. And uh, if you look it up, you know, you go on Google Images, you look up Jeffrey Martin locations, you'll find them. But they basically have a set of descriptors that describe the, the sort of experiences that you can have. And very loosely, it's from, you know, uh, sort of experiencing something like lack of self or um, a sort of loosening of self structures uh, with a lot of positive emotions coming along with that. So, you know, you go from location one to location four, and you're just sort of increasing that process of selflessness to positive emotions with a lot of other descriptions underneath. Um, I think it's a really fascinating framework. You know, it's a scientific framework, so it's not perfect. It's, it's very limited, uh, but I think it's a good, a good attempt at um, trying to describe what's going on for people. Now what Jeffrey did is he then took his dissertation and um, his background was in marketing and he was, uh, you know, a, a very, very effective marketer back in the 1990s. And so he was trying to figure out, you know, how do I take the science? How do I get it out to the people and, um, 
how do I do it in a way where I can continue to collect data? Because he wanted to continue to study people. And so he created this thing called the Finders course, which is part experiment, um, part mindfulness retreat, uh, and part uh, something new, some kind of techno <laughs> spiritual type of, of practice. And uh, I think he's been running it for the better part of five years or so. And he's been running people through. You basically sign up. It's, it's all online. So there's a bunch of trainings that you do. And then you do a ton of psychological assessment on top of it. So there's like hours and hours and hours of forums, questionnaires, uh, questions about your you know, psychological state, questions about your body state, questions about your relationships. And people get pretty tired of that <laughs> at the end. Um, but what's really smart about it, and I think it, it, it overlaps actually with Shenzhen's approach, is that what Jeffrey found and what the broader sort of contemplative neuroscience is finding is that different practices work for different people. It seems kind of obvious when I say it, but it's not so obvious if you go you know, to different Buddhist temples and you, you sign up and they teach you their own practices. So first off, different things work for different people. And so one of the assumptions in the finders course is that you're just gonna have to experiment with different practices and you're going to have to um, be a bit brave. You're gonna have to go into it. You're gonna have to try it and you're gonna have to be ready to try something else if it's not working. Or if the practice is actually leading you down sort of a, an, an unhelpful path, uh, you're gonna have to give that up and try something else. And so the finders course is a bunch of like trying different things figuring out what works for you. And then in the second half, you just pound away at those types of practices. Um, and so it's about 14 weeks, I believe, maybe 15 weeks. It's about an hour, two hours every day. Um, on top of that, you do a bunch of group practice, which I think is really important because we need connection and we need, we need to sort of talk about what's happening to us during these things. And then there's like a weekend sort of retreat thing on top of that. And, um, you know, it's quite effective. A lot of people have some shift, some psychological or phenomenological sort of experiential shift during the, the retreat. Um, it works really fast for people, which is both uh, good and bad. Jeffrey's been very open about that. Uh, if you change things too fast about your sense of self, kind of weird things can happen. Trauma can come up. Um, you know, it's not always... Um, Psychologically, it can be psychologically unhealthy in some cases. It can just be disruptive in other cases. And that's sort of what it's designed to do, actually. And so if you don't have the proper support, you don't have a, you know, sometimes you need a clinician to talk to, or at least a, maybe a mindfulness coach, uh, it can spin off into weird territory. But I would say that that's a, a subpopulation of people who go through the finder's course. Most people who go through it tend to shift from uh, an overall negative experience to uh, living in what Jeffrey calls fundamental okayness, uh, which is, I think, a really interesting term, where they're just sort of shifting from negative effect most of the time, negative talk, being mean to themselves, to sort of positive effect, self-compassion, you know, kind of living more meaningful experiences um, and, and things like that. And I'm curious, what happened to you? <laughs> yes. So uh, I went through this back in 2018. And, you know, up until that point, I had done some pretty intense practice by myself. We, we talked about that on the last call. And uh, a lot of negative stuff happened to me. I was one of the small percentage of people where a lot of negative stuff comes up and I had no support 
And so going into the finder supporters was a big uh, act of um, sort of bravery, I guess is the, the right word to use, because I was a little scared that it was going to be disruptive for me. But, you know, the notion that you would have a support group um, I actually knew Jeffrey at the time. I was becoming fast friends with him. And so I kind of knew the teacher. Um, you know, it kind of made me feel a little safer going into it. Um, I started sort of practicing about an hour to two hours every day. And, uh, you know, also I had Shenzhen. So that was the other big piece. Shenzhen was like next door uh, through, throughout all this. And so, you know, I knew I had some solid rock there <laughs> to fall back on. And, uh, you know, I started meditating hour every day and it was quite challenging in the beginning um, to get back into a practice like that. Uh, about four weeks in, I started having um, a taste of, of, of that, you know, the edge of, of what we talked about last time, the sort of the void, the vastness, the nothingness was sort of approaching again. And this time, you know, I could go to Shenzhen and I could say, this is what's happening. Um, so for example, about four weeks in, every time I would go to sleep, my attention was so focused and so um, capable, I don't know how to describe it, but I was actually witnessing sort of my conscious mind shutting off and I was still attentive and I was watching and all of a sudden, you know, the kind of Jay would shut off. Jay's chatty, Jay's, uh, you know, the defense mechanisms that make Jay not worry about the world so much would shut off and I was still aware and attentive and then all of a sudden, like the worst trauma, the worst, like, oh my God, I'm gonna die. Oh my God, I'm gonna die. And there was nothing in my mind to tell me, oh, it's okay, but you know, it's fine. Think about it later. You know, you're, you're 37, it's, you got lots of time. That wasn't there anymore. And I was still attentive and just flipping into this like, holy crap. Um, so stuff like that started happening, but now I would wake up and I would call Shenzhen and I would say, hey, you know, this, uh, this death thing keeps coming up when I'm falling asleep. And Shenzhen would go, great. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean great? This is like the worst, you know, it's like traumatizing me. And he would say, no, no, this is a great experience because now what you need to do is have equanimity for it. So what you want to do is resist it. You want to push it away. What you need to do is just open up to it. So tomorrow night when you go to sleep, you know, just have equanimity, go right into it. And the next night I would go, fall asleep I'd be totally terrified <laughs> like oh my god I'm gonna think about this death again think again I'm gonna die and the next night I went into it I just completely opened all of my awareness to this thing and I don't know how else to describe it it just flipped from all of that negative stuff into this like insane whiteness whatever you want to call it and it dissolved my whole experience dissolved I fell asleep and the next day I woke up and it never came back Right, it was just one simple practice, you know, that Shenzhen gave me that completely got, not got rid of it, but it helped me like go into it. So, you know, having having Shenzhen there kind of guide me through these little dark corners <laughs> of practice was, was quite accelerating, actually. And so, um, a couple of weeks after that, I actually decided to do some of the brain stimulation on myself as a as a self-practice. So for people who are listening who don't know, what our lab is doing is trying to, to use brain stimulation to accelerate the meditation practice. And at this point, Shenzhen and I have been talking about this concept for about six months. And one of the practices that I follow in my lab is that I don't do anything on other people, on subjects, until I do it on myself first. 
um, just because you want to be safe and you want to be confident that what you're doing on people is safe. And so I have to be confident that it's safe on myself uh, before I take it out to anyone else. And so during the finder's course, I decided to uh, do a very low dose of um, ultrasound brain stimulation on a part of the brain called the default mode network. This is a part of the brain that deals with that chatty voice, uh, the part that says, oh my God, I'm going to die, the piece that tries to come online to, to sort of protect you from that. And uh, I, I decided to do that during the practice. So while I was practicing during the finder's course, I did a very, very small dose of this brain inhibition. And I decided to do it once a week at first, just to see what would happen. Shenzhen was there with me. I actually had some researchers who were there with me to make sure that everything was okay. And uh, the first couple of times I did this, it took my mind to a stillness that I had never experienced before. Um, so I'm relatively good at getting my attention to be focused and to experience a quietness in my activation. My mind can settle, the voice can settle, my body can settle. I can sit still for about an hour, hour and a half without you know, really sort of getting to that needing to move. This was something different. This was like, okay, the conscious mind is still and I'm just paying attention. But now the unconscious part, <laughs> which I didn't even know could be still. You know, I had been still enough to become aware that the unconscious mind was sort of bubbling, if that makes sense to you. Some of your listeners probably have had that. I could see a bubble. I never could see what's in there, right? I could never perceive the conscious part. It would just bubble up and then sometimes it would just pop and I couldn't see it or sometimes it would bubble up and there's my childhood trauma coming up. <laughs> but this was like, okay, the top layer of the cake is still. So the conscious mind is still. Now the middle layer, the unconscious is still. And oh, by the way, there's like 20 other layers that I didn't even know about. <laughs> and all of those layers are now becoming still. And that was like a revelation to me, to know that you could be still, like all the levels, if there are levels, were like linking in their stillness and they could all be still together. And at that point, that's when my attention became like a laser. Like I could laser my attention, like right what felt like to the sensory input. And I could be with, you know, visual information as it was like hitting my eyeballs is what it felt like. No, I don't think that was actually happening, but I felt like I was sort of able to see information and input without the cognitive map and the meaning and all the crap that my brain wants to put on top of it. And that, I say that was a revelation because as soon as I came back to like, what does this feel like to Jay? Because automatically my mind would want to say, oh my God, I'm, 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 I'm there, <laughs> you know, oh my God, I'm there. You know, as soon as that came back on, if I allowed that to be still again, I started sort of seeing the, the processes that wanted to make meaning and, and add to it and tell Jay, like, you're doing so good at your practice. And watching all those processes go still again was like, oh my God, the whole thing can settle. And I don't have to like be in this anxious disposition about what does this mean? You know, like my, my death experience, for example. And so that was an incredible eye-opening, <laughs> for lack of a better description, um, experience because I was so focused on the, the visual, auditory, somatic, sensory settling, you know, processes that I didn't realize that the self 
could settle that much as well. And that was like, okay, wow, now I can just melt. I was sort of melting into experience at, at that point. And the fear that presumably might have arisen at that point had been dealt with previously, or at least worked with to some degree in this uh, falling asleep fear experience uh, that you reported previously. I, th I think so, but I think that that was one dimension of the fear. And, you know, that was part of what this was teaching me. The settling process was, I thought I was settled. I thought, you know, I thought I was really good at that. And I would go sit next to, you know, I was, I was on the campus of the University of New Mexico. So I'd always go sit by the pond and it had a little waterfall and I'd go sit next to the waterfall. And it was my favorite thing to do, just go sit and listen, you know, listen to the ducks, you know, swimming around the waterfall. This was like, oh, that there was like one dimension of settling and there's all these other dimensions to my experience. Yeah. And that fear was hiding out in all those little spaces, uh, you know, it was there just waiting to, to be activated to help Jay, you know, be Jay. You know, the fear is there to kind of help me do stuff in the world. That sort of deeper stillness and settling was just a huge insight for me that that's a possibility, that the work is, you know, constantly happening at more and more and more subtler levels and subtler, subtler levels. And as soon as the system that, that uses that fear, you know, the sense of self, that Jay, as soon as that would come back online and I was sort of attentive and silent enough to watch it come back online if that's when the really interesting stuff <laughs> started happening um, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about that if you <laughs> if you want um, uh, please do yeah i mean uh, so many questions are coming out of this but please can if there's more continue so you know at this point i, I do want to say as a, as a researcher um we wanted to be very careful and what i'm talking about at this point is all mostly positive. There was some negative stuff that would come up for me, but um, having Shins in there contextualized a lot of what was happening. So every day, you know, I was I was doing the brain stimulation once a week. I was meditating seven days a week. So every day, I was talking to Shenzhen, I was talking to Jeffrey, I was talking to my meditation group, and that was the piece that I wasn't aware of until the very end. But having this sort of outward reflection of like, here's what's happening to me. There's a, there's a not me experience that's happening to me. And I was sort of recycling that back to people and, and sort of saying, am I get, going crazy? And Shenzhen's like, no, 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 this is great. Like, you'll go crazy if you do this, but don't do that, do this. <laughs> you know, so there was always that, that fear in the back of my mind of like, I'm, I'm modulating my sense of self. This is what I signed up to do. I signed up to modulate the sense of self, but I want to make sure it's integrated, healthy and moving in a direction that will help me and my intention going through the finders course was I wanted to sort of get over myself, get over some of that fear so that I could eventually help other people. That's why I'm a scientist. That's why I'm so keen on meditating. That's why I'm so keen on getting over a bunch of this internal crap is A, so I can enjoy the world. I like going to art museums. I like going to musical fe music festivals. I want to enjoy the world. Um, I love nature. I love food. But, you know, also I want to be able to be with people and serve them. Um, through compassionate love. And so that was the underlying intention going in here, which was quite different than when I was 20-ish and I was meditating to become enlightened 
so I could save the world. <laughs> there was a much different intention back then, which led to, I think, a lot of the weirdness that happened to me. Well, what's, what's different about those? They sound quite similar. If I could put, juxtapose them, you want uh -huh. to clear out some of the crap inside of yourself, get over yourself so that you can help others, or uh, you want to become enlightened so you can save the world. What's, uh, that sound, they, they certainly follow a similar shape. What's the difference, mm -hmm. the, the key difference there? It's a very good question and something I, I didn't really understand until going through the finders course and working with Shenzhen sort of simultaneously, which is one of them was about attainment and a sort of goal, which you know, I think we've talked about on previous podcasts. Our bodies have evolved multiple systems of goals to help us act in the world. From a neuroscience point of view, that's what this thing is doing. It's got some goals, procreate, find food, you know, get away from fear, feel good multiple levels going on. And so the goal system is very important. I'm not going to say like, we should just get rid of that. But I do think that uh, Buddha or whoever was the Buddha figured out that there's something fundamental about that goal system that causes this chain of suffering. Um, and I, I think that that basic insight is, is on some dimension, right? that there's something about the attachment to those goals, the creation of those goals and the self system that gets attached to them that is fundamentally causing this situation of unpleasantness or displeasure or unhappiness or you know, suffering, if you wanna go in that dimension. And if your goal is to get over the goals by reaching a goal, <laughs> uh, you might not be escaping that system. Um, you might just actually be reifying that system to the highest level, saying that if I can just attain enlightenment and, and get there, then it, it just cleans up all the crap underneath. And that was kind of my assumption. I just got to get there at all costs. I need to destroy my sense of self. I can take psychedelics and do all these, you know, drum circles and meditation and I'll just do it all and just rip it all apart and I'll be done. And at the end of the day, I was just clearing out all the lower level goals and i just had this one giant spiritual goal at top at the top of the hierarchy and it was almost stronger than all the little goals underneath um and i i think that ended up leading me into this direction of of a sort of a very unhealthy sense of self i think is the easiest way to say it because the sense of self was like all the things that made my sense of self, I just cleared them out, just got rid of them. And then the whole thing was just based on this one thing, which I had no idea what it actually was. I just was reading books about enlightenment and things like that. And, and now it became based on this, um, this sort of ill-defined concept. And it got, it got attached to that. And it, it was sort of talking about that. And it was sort of identifying with that one goal. And underneath, there was just nothing. And it was that nothing underneath that was what I really fell into, that sort of void of, there was no more J, there was, you know, nothing underneath to get attached to. And so as I emerged back in the world to try to talk to my friends about why am I doing this? Why am I going in this direction? Why was I meditating for two to three hours a day? There was nothing to say. <laughs> and it was really scary because there was nothing underneath. And so it just became like, okay, that's, that path really isn't effective in the world. If I'm just nothing, if there's nothing happening inside of my psyche, there's nothing to do. I should just go live in a cave or something <laughs> or go live in, you know, the beach. There is this kind of island that I could go live on next door that 
that nobody lived at. And so um, I think the other path is sort of clearing out in a way where you're removing some of the process. So removing some of the fear, removing some of the uh, underlying trauma, removing some of the illusions and ignorance you know, about what this really is. Uh, maybe some illusion and ignorance about how my nervous system actually works and replacing it with something that's more um, effective in the world, something that's more useful, um, but maybe not so sticky and solid, <laughs> um, but still there. It's still, there's still you know, some structure underneath that allows me to behave in the world and be present and, and, and uh, helpful in the world. Um, with, with the understanding that I don't have to get so attached to it in the first place. Is that answering the question? I feel like I've blabbered a little bit there. So you're saying you, you in a sense, committed the error of um, identifying unknowingly with uh, uh, this ideal of enlightenment. Uh, whereas now it seems, having made that mistake, uh, you're still, in a, some, some senses, pursuing similar themes, but without that fundamental error. So perhaps the difference was in your conception of the goal ra rather than rather than the goal itself. That, that's it, would, that, would you say that's fair or have I misunderstood you? I think that's fair. Yep. And I, I think that the process of identification was one that I just was ignorant about. You know, I didn't know much about self and self-process. And, you know, I, I just read a couple books about Buddhism and, and post-Buddhism, you know, secular Buddhism in the West. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I read Timothy Leary's Tibetan Book of the Dead. And, you know, I read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and, you know, the, the perennial philosophy. So I, I was experimenting with these concepts, but I think there's one thing to, to know this stuff. And my, my background at that point was in philosophy. There's really a, another thing to live it in the body and, and understand it in an experiential way. And, you know, it, we experience, and that's a certain type of knowledge we can know and talk about. That's another type of knowledge we can we can do math. Math is another type of knowledge. So I just hadn't had the experiential component of what I was reading about and, 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 and talking to people about a lot. And so the finder's course, actually, that was the moment where this self-identification process, where I really deeply started feeling into, like, what is that? What's it doing? How is it working in, in my own experience? You know, what kind of crap is it causing <laughs> in my own world uh, and, and what does it need and you know what's interesting is I actually started uh, with compassion practice but way back in like 2003 2004 and I very quickly moved into attention practices and gave up the compassion practice and the compassion practice was really effective for me um, because I, I have this sort of anxious disposition and I'm really mean to myself I think a lot of academics are I think that we believe that being mean to yourself is how you become successful. Um, it's a driving, motivating force. And compassion training very long ago actually taught me that that's not true. You can be nice to yourself and be effective and, and successful. And, and actually, it's a little easier of a path. Um, but for whatever reason, I kind of zoomed into attention practice and didn't do that. And when I was having this like extreme quieting and stilling of the system, I was able to witness what felt to me like this thing inside of me that wanted to attach. 
And because I was, uh, you know, meditating so much and then also doing a little tiny bit of brain stimulation, my system was able to uh, sort of reorient in a sense is one way that I experienced it, where there were these windows of time, maybe 30 seconds to a minute, where I would actually reverse my identity. And I know this is going to sound a little crazy to some people, but stay with us. So, you know, usually my identity is like right behind my eyeballs and I'm just sort of looking out in the world and everything is about me. It's I'm the center of the universe. This process would just sort of flip and it would get, I would get really excited when this happened. And so that the excitement would break it almost always. I would get, oh my God, it's happening. You know, I'm flipping my identity. And so if I could let that excitement settle and then refocus, I could maintain. And what would happen is I was, I was just sort of watching like visual input or I would watch auditory input, you know, just a car going by or a bird on the tree. And my brain would, um, I would watch the system go, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And I laugh because it was sort of this, you know, almost, I hesitate to say psychedelic because people will take this in the wrong direction, but it was like, you know, a oneness sort of, sort of type of thing that people talk about when they're, they've taken psychedelics in the sense that the inner identification process and the boundary had gone away. And I was just watching my brain try to attach to whatever was coming in, that, 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 that. And if I was able to not get too excited and be like, oh my God, something's happening and just watch it, then what I would see is that there's something in me that's trying to identify. Like that's its job. It just wants to identify. It just wants so desperately. And because I've modulated my system so much with meditation and a tiny bit of brain stimulation, it's not identifying in its normal way. So it's just gonna identify with whatever the heck it can. And I would just watch it go, that, that, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And the experience that I had, if I could really hold attention, and this is still, this is like 30 seconds before all this would go away, was extreme compassion for that process. It was like, oh my God, I just need to let it do that. It, that's its job and it's going to do that and it's okay. That's what it's doing. It's there to do that. And it doesn't, at this point, I was like watching a little child inside of my own system. Like I was almost like I was watching the primitive form of my consciousness or something like this little in, innocent thing that just wanted to grab on and it wanted something to attach to. And as soon as this compassion thing would happen, I would be way back in my body, the boundaries would come back and everything would collapse. <laughs> and then I would just be like, whoa, that was kind of crazy. Like what, what just happened there? And so, you know, then I would go back to Shenzhen and I would talk to him and I'd be like, this is happening. And, you know, again, he's like, great, <laughs> you know, this is, and he would give it some Sanskrit words and, you know, talk about some different Buddhist traditions who had talked about things like this. And he would really contextualize it for me. And he would say, this is first, this is okay, it's normal. And this is a good sign. Here's what you need to do uh, after this. Um, and so he would really help me sort of understand, you know, what, what this was about and help me. So help Jay, the person who's identifying now from behind my eyeballs, looking out into the world, sort of help me understand what this means about my own world and how to, how to sort of be in the world um, with that sort of new knowledge. And really where that ended up going was self-compassion, is sort of being 
um, being okay with the fact that that's in there and it's not going to shut off and I can be with it and, uh, and hold its hand and, and allow it to not get so stuck in its own need to sort of grabby grab, you know, grabby grab on, on everything that, that is uh, coming in. Now, what's really interesting about that is that, you know, at this point we were sort of like, okay, Jason's self has been modulated a lot. It seems to be good. You know, this was, at this point, I was way happier uh, positive emotion was through the roof. This was about, you know, week seven or eight into the finder's course. And I didn't feel like it was becoming like a, a manic energy or anything like that. It was becoming a very stable, positive effect. And at this point, it was sort of like, all right, probably, probably time to stop. The experiment is uh, over. And we actually decided to go one more week uh, to, to sort of see if this effect would continue. Um, one of the things that <clears throat> Shenzhen's been very clear about is that this stuff is exponential. The stuff that we're talking about, this sort of happiness trajectory that meditators can get on, uh, it seems very linear. And sometimes it actually seems like you hit a plateau, um, usually about five to 10 years in. But somewhere for most people, it starts sort of the curve of the change becomes exponential. And that's one of the fundamental things that we're looking for in our lab is, can we understand that process if that's real? You know, Long-term meditators describe this, can we see it? If it's real, can we facilitate that with brain stimulation um, or other interventions? And can we do that in a healthy, positive and integrative way such that we can help people get on that exponential growth curve but instead of taking 30 years, can it take you know, five years, for example? Or what if, what if it could take two years? What if it could take six months? And is the shape of that trajectory healthy for someone to go out in the world and be an effective person? And so we were asking this question. And so I said, well, it feels to me like I'm on this exponential happiness curve at this point in my practice. The sense of self has been modulated, but it's stable. I'm getting deep insights about how this thing works. And I'm I'm actually gaining a lot of self-compassion about, about it um, along the way. And so we decided to do one more week uh, where I did um, inhibition of this default mode network um, twice. And a really interesting thing started happening where uh, really with like the first pulse of the ultrasound, uh, the brain stimulation, I could just collapse into that state. Um, so I would go from, you know, highly concentrated, silent to that sort of the sense of self has dissolved so much that, you know, I'm just completely open to whatever's happening. And at this point, it just seemed like a bunch of patterns, you know, sort of patterning out. And, um, you know, then it would snap back and it would snap in and it would snap out. And it, it almost felt like I had some control over that process. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I would never at this point admit to or, or claim to be something like an arhat, so someone who can turn on and off the sense of self and go into dual and non-dual, but it, it felt like my system was really learning how to enter into these states and enter out of these states. And that was incredible. That was like, okay, this is powerful, time to stop <laughs> because we don't want to go too far too fast. But it really was like, the system with the right inputs and training can learn how to reorganize into these states um, in a way that seems stable. 
And, and that stability is something that we're really interested in in our lab because we don't want to just willy-nilly brain stimulate you into these weird states and then you can't control yourself. That's a, a real possibility for the brain. And it's a really scary thing that we worry about in our lab. And we want to make sure that we help facilitate the training so you can train yourself into a new <clears throat> stable state that is less attached, less ego, more present, more compassionate, you know, those types of things. And so, you know, this was like, oh my gosh, this might be possible. We can use a little bit of brain stimulation, plus lots of practice, plus lots of integration work and help the brain learn how to shift in and out of these states in a stable way. And that tended to last, I would say for about two weeks for me, or even off of the pillow, now I'm walking out in the world. And if I did a certain thing with my attention, which was, this sounds a little funny, but I would put my attention like behind my eyeballs, <laughs> um, which is kind of where it felt like sort of some of this stuff was taking place. And I would just feel into that, really just become mindful of that sort of attentional state. Then uh, the self system would loosen up and I would just become much more open and present to the world in a way that, that felt, like, felt like that identification process wasn't so stuck on me, but it was able to sort of open itself to whatever was happening. Um, and then the last bit I'll give for the story is that what tended to happen there was all of my relationships changed. I mean, pretty much literally every one of my relationships in that two week period uh, became much less effortful, I would say is the word. It just became easy to know what to do, what to say, how to be present, how to be emotional with people. Um, I was very able to be vulnerable, uh, which was needed for me because I was a postdoc at the time. I was leading a big team of people. Um, there were some difficult relationships in my life and it was just, I just opened the vulnerability channel <laughs> and was able to just be with people. And uh, that, that, you know, to me felt like that was because that little identification process was able to sort of let go a little bit and, and just be, just gobbled up, you know, whatever was coming in, it just gobbled it up and it, it wasn't so, so attached uh, to what was happening. Wow. That's remarkable. <laughs> I'm curious, um, two, two things, several things, two things. First of all, you had close contact there with, with Shenzhen, for example, and also to an extent, Jeffrey, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned also that Shenzhen was contextualizing some of the stages of the experience you were going through and presumably corresponding them to certain descriptions in traditional systems, meditative systems. I'm wondering if you can recall uh, any of those correspondences, and that's not to say that you're claiming anything, I'm not uh, suggesting that, but I'm just curious if you could say, well, objectively, if you like, um, uh, this looks like that, and this looked like this, and it looks, looks like, uh, this looks like the other. And the other thing is, how much time do you think the brain stimulation saved you? Or what territory did it help you cross in a, a quicker or more profound time? Once again, corresponding that to say a meditator without the brain stimulation. You've mm -hmm. given the personal phenomenological account in, the, in answer to that question, but I'm wondering if you can correspond to, let's say a, a more traditional meditation stage style uh, territory also. I'm sure, sure it's something you, you've thought a lot, a lot about. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very curious about that. Sure. Um, first, the question about um, Shenzhen's feedback. So I wrote, we took copious notes because this was essentially a self-experiment. 
Um, so I have a ton of notes of lots of mostly Sanskrit words <laughs> that Shenzhen brought up, um, but lots of other traditions as well. And a lot of it was way too advanced for me. You know, at that point I wasn't, and I, I still am not really steeped in Buddhist traditions. I'm sort of in contemplative practice in the neuroscience, but you know, Shenzhen is, is literally one of the world experts in this stuff and uh, speaks multiple languages and has read a lot of these texts. And so he, he was as excited, if not more than me, because it was bringing up a lot for him. He was like, wow, this is reminding me of this. And this is reminding me of this. But what was really interesting about a lot of it was my descriptions had flavors of things that he recognized. And of course, it's, it's filtering through Shenzhen's filter. So that's, you know, it, you gotta have you gotta have that caveat, but it always was a little different too. And, and this gets to your second question as well. It wasn't like a there wasn't a traditional map that we could point to that we could say this is exactly what's happening to you. There were flavors of this, and there were flavors of this, ingredients of this, and it was all sort of mixing together into what seemed like a little bit something new. And that was as equally exciting to us. Um, as, as it was scary, because now you're going into new territory and you have to be very, very careful and cautious when you're doing something like that. So uh, yeah, I don't remember much specifically because I, you know, it was so sort of advanced for me, but uh, we have a lot of notes. We've actually thought about publishing it someday uh, once we can properly contextualize this for people. Um, and of course, Shenzhen has also had the, the stimulation done on himself. And so he has his own sort of experience and it's been very similar for him that it, the brain stimulation tends to push him into a direction that's familiar, but opens up sort of a new door or breaks down a wall that he didn't really even know was there. So it, you can explore this new piece of the phenomenology. And I think that that can be very helpful for practice. It can also, obviously, if you do it too much, lead you into sort of traps or sort of weird places. And so you have to be careful about that. Um, for your second question, you know, the insight for me personally was this equanimity stuff is a real thing. This, this openness that I was talking to, this, this dispositional state of being uh, open and capable of uh, being vulnerable, <laughs> really, and being um, accepting and um, being able to sort of experience the, the deeper ends of my emotional experience or even my thoughts but being able to sort of be balanced in between and sort of glide, you know, the way I felt was like I was sort of gliding through the world um, as a sort of wave. Uh, Alan Watts's phrase is there's prickly people and there are wavy people. I was definitely a prickly person, <laughs> which is what helped me become a graduate student, a postdoc and a PhD and, you know, all of those types of things. But this helped the sort of prickly, sticky stuff sort of calm down and helped me sort of start gliding through. And that's the only thing that lasted actually for me. So I don't actually feel like I can even, if I do the sort of attention thing, and I put my attention behind my eyes, it doesn't sort of modulate the sense of self like it did previously. But the equanimity, the baseline equanimity has just elevated all over the whole body mind experience for me and that was incredible because you know i think for many long-term meditators that's the harder piece you know the attention training um, even the compassion training the body training those things you can train and you can sort of see incrementally them those growing 
equanimity sort of tends to come later, I think, in a lot of the, the different traditions. Um, and let me know if I'm wrong about that. But, you know, I think it tends to be the harder one because it's a long-term trait level personality disposition. And from a psychology and neuroscience point of view, I think the reason for that is because you have to sort of cleanse a lot of the deeper patterns in the system that may cause you. So if, if I'm a neurotic personality disposition, I'm probably that way somewhat from my genetics, but a lot from my experience and probably a lot from childhood. You know, Freud was right about some of that stuff um, about childhood experience. Something happened to me. You know, I, I had a lot of traumatic things happen. Um, not, not a lot compared to some people, but some tra traumatic things happened to me as a child. And so that probably led me to certain patterns of behavior and patterns of disposition. And so that, that's probably directly related to the equanimity stuff. How open I am towards certain people, for example, is probably directly related to how I view those people due to my childhood experiences. Um, and so for whatever reason, helping that sense of self system cool down and quiet and become a little fuzzier, but in a constructive way, sort of reverberated to the whole system such that those patterns are very clearly there. And I see them all the time when I meditate, but now when they reverberate out, they don't cause so much tightness in the system. And I think that's what equanimity really is. It's this sort of uh, process of energetic, and I'm talking about sort of energy in the brain. We're not talking about woo-woo energy, but just sort of the way that energy sort of emerges as a pattern in my nervous system is a little more fluid dynamic the fluid dynamics is more fluid. It's less sort of sticky, like, a, you know, like honey or something. There's less honey and it's not so stuck. And uh, that's clearly persistent. And so it, it's almost like I got to sort of shortcut to some of that equanimity stuff. And it then sort of fed back into all my other practices. And so now when I meditate, I don't have to spend so much time trying to fall into equanimity or, or cultivate that equanimity. Um, it used to take me literally 20 minutes to let my system calm, let the sort of heart, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff that I hold around my heart, let that go away, let it sort of breathe. Um, you know, that would be 20 minutes. And then I would, boom, I'd blast into like a John or something. But now it's like I sit on the pillow, close my eyes, take a couple deep breaths and that equanimity is just holding it's like holding me you know it's there so that's been incredible and you know that that experience actually coming out of you know the kind of disruption of the self the self coming back and putting itself together like Humpty Dumpty um, you know that was the the experience that Shenzhen and I had where it was like okay this might be doable because not only did it 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 take you to the edge of the exponential change, which is where we're trying to get people. But once we stopped and we continued the practice, it was a good thing. It's not like I went into some weird psychological state or something. I came back online and I had the tool of equanimity to help me put myself together in a way that's really helpful. You know, that helps me communicate, have better relationships, just take a walk in the desert and enjoy the desert instead of think about the pandemic and all the things that are happening and all that crap. So, you know, that was the real lesson was, okay, this is possible. 
it's maybe constructive and it seems to be safe and at least the dosing that, that we were actually doing that. So, you know, that's what actually led Shenzhen and I to decide to pivot, I think both of our lives <laughs> from what we were both doing separately to really deciding to work together and to ask the question, what happened to me? Can we replicate that in other people? And is it safe? Is it effective? And does it really help people get on a path that helps them live a better life, you know, a happier life, a more fulfilled life, more meaning, more connection? And if it does, this is what we should spend all of our time on. <laughs> you know, so that's that's kind of where we are now. We're two and a half years into that. And we're finally, um, because of the pandemic, we slowed down, but now we're finally starting to really run the big studies where we're testing this hypothesis. That's very exciting. You mentioned vulnerability and the change in your relationships. Of course, that's one of the classic questions that one asks uh, a person after they've had, now I take it out of the brain stimulation context, some profound spiritual experience that they report and they want, you know, it's, it's traditional often to go to senior practitioner or teacher or whatever, say, you know, this happened to me, you know, and so on. And one of the classic questions, and I think quite an unexpected one, is how are your relationships? Because it does seem to be one of the areas in which certain aspects of this sort of a process can have some um, evidence. Mm -hmm. Equanimity is sometimes taken to mean passivity, kind of um, everything's cool, no problem, passivity in relationships and in uh, life, actually, kind of passivity. Mm -hmm. And vulnerability is sometimes seen to be uh, weakness, can sometimes seem to be. In fact, vulnerability is, uh, we could say, uh, the openness to being, or the, the possibility of being hurt in a certain sense. The, if a joint is vulnerable to damage, um, then that's seen generally not to be a good thing in, say, a structure, for example. I don't think we necessarily need to explain why equanimity isn't passivity. Maybe we do, I don't know. Um, but I think it certainly would be useful to explain in your experience when you use that word vulnerability, um, what you mean by that. Uh, that. Now, another couple of other uses of the word vulnerability that come to mind, popular usages of vulnerability is telling people uh, the pain you're experiencing or sharing your inner thoughts and emotions, sometimes in real time, etc. You know, when you said that, I felt this, this sort of thing, sort of thing one might do in uh, couples counseling, for example, as a way of um, learning to communicate uh, in a couple's situation and so on. So I'm curious when you say vulnerability, what, what do you what do you mean there? You're leading a lab, you're leading uh, situations, I presume in such a situation, a passivity, or um, uh, psychological processing with your underlings uh, is probably not appropriate a lot of the time. So uh, how, how does it, uh, can you unpack a little bit uh, that aspect? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for equanimity, I like the way that Shenzhen talks about uh, the way that he tries to define it is actually in a very scientific context. And you know, we were talking about energy flow. So he thinks about it in terms of either fluid dynamics or entropy in the sense that, you know, very broadly, you've got a brain with billions of neurons, um, networks that are working, and they're all, they're all energetic. They all want food. They want energy. They want life. They're all living in a certain sense. And so think about them as sort of all competing for your attention. They want input. They want you to pay attention to them. 
and they want you to ignore other people around them so they can get what they need. You know, that's somewhat of the system in the brain. There's all this competition happening. And if, if you get locked into a habit of mind, like, uh, okay, I'll, I'll be vulnerable right now and I'll talk about some, some bad habit that I have. I love the subreddit called Reddit Collapse. I do not recommend anybody going to Reddit Collapse. I know a lot of people are now probably looking it up. Don't get stuck there because um, if you have the type of disposition that I have, uh, it will reinforce a sort of habit of mind, which is, oh my God, the climate's collapsing. Oh my God, the economy's going to collapse. Oh my God, Donald Trump's going to be reelected president. Uh, you know, this sort of negative, and I'm, I'm pointing to the right side of my head because that's where this is occurring in the system. So the more that you feed those neurons, the more asymmetrical that process will be is one way to think about it. So I sit at my computer, I have a decision, what do I do? I pull up Reddit collapse and start reading about the collapse of society. And that starts feeding this habit of my mind to go negative, to think about these things, uh, which is ultimately an ego process of what do I do? Should I do something? Should I give up my lab and go try to fight the climate situation? Which is sometimes what I wonder, you know, maybe we should all be doing that. So if you think about that in terms of an asymmetry, that's similar to the way that some people define equanimity. Equanimity is a balanced mind. That's kind of sort of a more Buddhist-y way to think about it. And you want to be in the middle. It's not that you don't feel negative. You want to feel negative. You want to feel positive. But I think we would all agree, if I, leading a lab, if I just spent 12 hours a day on Reddit collapse, it would be very bad for my lab. <laughs> it's a bad thing to do too much of that. And so you want to say, okay, Maybe it's healthy to read Reddit Collapse for five minutes a day because they do give a lot of good information there that's helpful for me that I don't get to read in the mainstream media. So, okay, read just a tiny bit of that, but let's balance it with positive news, positive interactions, positive relationships. And so you can think about equanimity as this sort of uh, balancing of the systems so that any one system isn't too, taking up too much energy in and of itself. Um, and when it does, when my mind goes towards, oh, I need to look at Reddit collapse, it's fine, but I need to be able to look at it for just a couple minutes and then let go and then do something else because there's a lot of positive stuff going on in this world right now. Actually, there's lots of great movements, BLM, uh, there's, there's movements around human rights, you know, there's all this, there's actually a lot of scientific movements to try to help with this climate situation. So, you know, you need to balance those things out. And I think if you've looked in the system, if you think, thought about it in terms of energy sort of moving through, uh, sort of neurons firing, let's just call that the energy, the neurons are firing, then what you would see is that if I had a thought or the habit of my mind of, oh my God, everything is going to collapse, that goes through, I just notice it, pay attention to it, say hello to it, love it, <laughs> love myself for being the kind of person who cares, and then repaying attention to you, because right now we're having a conversation that could be really helpful for other people. And that's equanimity. It's sort of letting the system balance energetically so that you're back in your body and you're able to respond uh, to whatever is happening. Now, um, I think that that process is super effective in trying to help you figure out what do I actually do? So I think, as we've talked about before, a fundamental question for our nervous system is what do I do? And a fundamental truth about being a human being is you are social. You have no choice. You can go live 
on your boat on the middle of the ocean for the rest of your life if you want. But, you know, it's at some point you're going to get lonely. <laughs> and at some point you're going to need humans. And that's just built into you. And you can practice that away. Sure. Um, and you can you can do that. But if you're going to be living among other human beings, you're you're wired for social interaction for you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so I, I have the same draw. I want to go live on a boat uh, out in the middle of the ocean. And I, I did live on a boat for a summer. So, you know, you've got these two facts. The system needs to figure out what to do. And the system is designed to be social. And it's got these sort of social motivations in it. It wants connection. It wants to be out there. And so I think that this is where questions about compassion, vulnerability. Um, what's the point of it all? We talked about that, I think, on the last call. What's the point of all this meditation in the first place? Like, where am I getting to? Underneath, it's freeing the system so it can figure out how to be a human being, figure out what to do as a human being in this world with other humans who are, in my point of view, destroying the planet and maybe destroying the future for the rest of the humans that we want to come along. Right. That's the question. What do I do as a scientist for all the people who are about to come after me? And how do I reduce the suffering of those people? Or in a less Buddhist way, how do I help those people live the best possible life that they can live? That's my goal as a scientist. Why is that my goal as a scientist? Well, I have to figure out what to do. And I'm a human being who wants to live for other people, you know, who has to have connections and stuff like that. And so I see, you know, this sort of mindfulness training, this sort of sense of self stuff that we're talking about, the neuroscientific facts that the system has to figure out what to do, and the sort of psychological fact that we're social, all of that comes into play in the compassion stuff, in the sort of how do I use my attentional motivation body system to release the suffering of other people or to reduce the suffering of other people? And I think that that's actually a basic sort of function of our systems. Um, I'm not claiming that we evolved to uh, be Buddhist, <laughs> although some people might hear that. What I'm claiming is that we evolved systems that try to reduce the suffering of other people. And in the first place, it is, you know, the suffering of our child. You know, we have this sort of nurturing parental stuff inside of us. But I think that it actually transcends that because we see human beings acting in ways to try to reduce the suffering in all kinds of contexts that aren't that. And so I think that we just use that system in all these other contexts to try to sort of help people out with their suffering. What's really interesting about that, so I think most people would agree that, you know, fundamentally we want to make people happier. I want to make my family happier. I want to make my kids happier, my girlfriend happier. I want to help them not be in suffering as much as possible. But one thing that uh, we don't really tend to connect that to is that to do that, we have to get uncomfortable a lot of the time. So, you know, in the Western culture, uh, we are very keen on telling people to be brave and to be courageous and to go into the war and put your body out there for America. What we don't teach people is that when you uh, get to the front line, <laughs> you've got to be vulnerable. There's no other way. You're putting yourself out there. You may die. You're emotionally, that's going to be really freaking scary. So courage and um, trying to get out there to reduce suffering, you know, in this case, like get Osama bin Laden or whatever you're trying to do, 
is very scary. You're going to have to be vulnerable. You're going to have to put yourself in situations that are extremely emotionally uncomfortable in order to reach the goal uh, that you're trying to get to, reducing the suffering. And so I think that this is probably a universal <laughs> um, type of situation where let's say you're a parent and you have a teenage child and that child is uh, going through sexual maturity. It's, it's an awkward time for a teenager. Uh, there's lots of TV shows about this now where you know they're kind of making fun of this and it's fun to remember, oh my God, what a crazy time. You know, all these hormones and everything's changing. For a parent, you want to try to reduce the suffering of that child. You've been through that. You can help them through that. But when you sit down with your child to talk to them about sex, you know, that, that's a very uncomfortable uh, conversation to have. It's uncomfortable for me to even talk about it with you. We're two males. We shouldn't be even talking about this on the podcast. Uh, but it needs, like children, you know, the, the teenagers at least need these types of conversations to be able to adjust healthily. And what they need is for adults to be vulnerable, to sit down with obvious boundaries. So it's not weird for the child, but, you know, to put themselves in an uncomfortable situation so that they can remove, uh, try to reduce some of that suffering of that child so that they can enter into adulthood with less sort of um, <laughs> discomfort and rigidity. And, and uh, oh my God, this is so weird. And I think that that's totally possible. What the parent has to do actually is that they have to be courageous and to be courageous you actually have to be vulnerable you have to put yourself in that sort of uncomfortable situation and so you know when i was sort of going through the finders course and learning how to sort of be in my body deal with the sort of uncomfortableness of being a leader which is there's a lot of that um i actually sort of reconstituted as jay and uh, <laughs> kind of came back into the body after the practice and started realizing that I have to go into the discomfort. I have to go into the negative emotion. I have to go into not knowing how to be a leader, right? Because I was just a postdoc. I mean, it's my real first time being a leader. And I have to be okay with that discomfort. I have to be vulnerable. I have to be open to that discomfort. And what I started learning is that by turning into it, like so sitting with my student and listening to their problems, and instead of suppressing it and pushing it down and pushing it away, just being present, being mindful, being in my body. And then actually what I would usually do for the people is I would say, I'm uncomfortable. Just gonna let you know, like I'm supposed to be wise and tell you what to do. And I don't know what to tell you <laughs> I and mean, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna start there and we're gonna do this together. And you know, that to me is true vulnerability, like really, being in a place where you're like, I can't predict what's going to happen now. And it's scary. And that's okay. Because, you know, it's all unpredictable. <laughs> and so, you know, we don't know what's going to happen next anyway. So let's do this together because I care about you as my student. And I want to help you, you know, figure out how to get to graduate school or whatever that person was trying to do. And that was a completely new strategy for me that I just kind of sort of fell into because of all the stuff that was going on. And that became super powerful because it was sort of like my attention practice, my mindfulness practice, my baseline equanimity, and then my ability to sort of be in the body and, and holding with that person that what I want is for this person to grow. I want them to, 
whatever this thing is that's causing their suffering. I want to be in this space to help them get over that so they can flourish, you know, that they can get to graduate school and flourish. And so it was like, almost like all those practices were coming together. And the crucial piece was actually me being able to be okay with the uncertainty and okay with the sort of, I might not have the answer for this person and oh, maybe that's okay. <laughs> it's okay, I don't have to always be the wisest person. Um, you know, now what's funny about that is now there's a, there's a couple of really popular TED Talks um, and um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting her name. There's a, a social psychologist, Brene Brown, yeah. Brene Brown is out there talking about this now and she's very eloquent about, you know, the relationship between compassion and vulnerability or courage and vulnerability. And when I started watching her talks, it was like, holy crap, yes, this is exactly what I was experiencing was, you know, all of these different pieces coming together to help me reach my goal, which is reduce the suffering of the person in front of me, which when I do that, oh my God, it makes me feel so good. <laughs> and it becomes this feedback loop. And so that was the, the last component of this whole narrative was I really started feeling like that mindfulness, equanimity, compassion stuff that was happening for me started becoming a feedback loop with the world. Like it's almost like the world became like biofeedback, if, if you know what that is. Um, so you can like, you can, you can do like breath training where you see your breath rate and you feed that back to the body and it helps you breathe deeper. It was almost like I was biofeedbacking compassion <laughs> with the world. And it was because my, my self-other distinction was soft enough so that I could be vulnerable with people and be in my body and have these negative emotions, but also solid enough. So I had that distinction at the same time. So I wasn't getting fully lost in someone else's suffering. I was, I was able to be there enough boundary-wise, but also loose enough so that I could be present, I could hear them, and I could try to offer something that was truly helpful. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the end of the day, what a lot of my, um, my students were telling me was, it really didn't matter what I said. It was just the fact that I was present and, and, and emotional and open. And you know, I was an older male you know, in their life who was saying things like, this is not comfortable. And that's okay, <laughs> which seems so easy to say now, but you know, it's quite hard then. Mm, that's very interesting. So it sounds like you're defining vulnerability, it seems, in, with two aspects to it. Number one was the willingness to feel uncomfortable, to put yourself into uncomfortable positions, or to expose oneself to, to risk or discomfort. There's that yeah. aspect. But then, then there's another use, and it seems a slightly distinct use of vulnerability, um, in which you're then expressing what you're feeling inside uh, to whoever might be there. Um, mm -hmm. Those seem to be two uh, separate uses almost. The first one seeming to be almost synonymous with equanimity or at least an effect of equanimity, the willingness to put yourself in an uncomfortable position or feel uncomfortable, actually, it seems to be the key point, is the willingness right. to feel uncomfortable. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, uh, and I would just add the other, part of that, and I think um, this is sort of part of the sort of scientific definitions now, is the uncertainty piece. It's really, equanimity is underneath all of this, I think, more than synonymous with it, because equanimity allowed me to sit with the uncertainty. Because, you know, what, my, what I wanted to do is just go in and know what to say. Okay, this person wants to get to grad school, they're really freaked out. 
I've forgotten to grad school, I know what to say. And the truth was, I don't know their experience. So I had to be open and listen, which is uncomfortable because I had to put my own problems down. I had to like be with that person. I had to simulate their emotions. Um, I had to be empathetic, basically. You know, all of that is uncertain because I didn't know how long it was going to take. I had my own crap I needed to do. Uh, I might have to cry with them. I, I'm not good at crying in front of other people. You know, there's all this uncertainty around that as well. And so I think that's the other part. And having the equanimity allowed me to feel and let it go. You know, because for me, a lot of it was, oh my God, the feelings are so emotional. I'm going to spin out of control. I'm going to cry. I'm going to have to be embarrassed. I'm going to have to go take a walk. And, you know, it's just all that kind of emotional processing. And the equanimity was like, it's okay. You can feel that and, and feel it fully and then come back. You don't have to get like spun up into that kind of stuff. So anyway, I think the uncertainty is my piece. Mm, yeah, that's amazing. Regarding the second piece, the piece of sharing your emotional state or, or your not knowing what to say, for example, narrating that to, in the example you gave to a student, for example, and they, them finding that to be uh, soothing to them, regardless of whether what you actually then advised them uh, had any utility or effectiveness. It didn't seem to matter to them, they said, or I don't know if they meant, really meant that, or if they meant that the, the, the sort of emotional resonance was so good that it wouldn't have mattered if what you said uh, didn't, wasn't very useful. That's probably closer to the truth. Um, mm -hmm. I think that you could have said something that was so ineffective that it would have, over, you know, would have <laughs> <laughs> rendered the emotional resonance. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's great and everything, but this is terrible advice. <laughs> but what I want to know is, is it necessary to narrate that discomfort? Is that a necessary part of how you, you're, you're conceiving of vulnerability in, in terms of this new capacity or this new strategy that's unfolded to you? Is it necessary to narrate the inner state other than uh, creating a sense of emotional relief for the person or perhaps establishing a certain degree of trust, uh, mm -hmm. for example, or maybe liberating you somehow to, to be more available in the situation. Perhaps it's, it's, it's um, in telling them your inner state, you're in some way soothing yourself, for example, or, or, or liberating some aspect of yourself to be more participatory. What's the use of that? Is it a necessary step? Then the next stage, and now we come back to vulnerability is weakness which I mentioned before is, is something that's often associated with the word. Um, uh, and I understand that's not what, that's not, not the way you're defining it. What about conflict, a conflict situation? Or what about a, a, situ a situation in which your inner uh, discomfort, for example, uh, could be uh, weaponized or used uh, strategically against you by someone with ill intent or somebody who maybe, not, if not now, later, might want to uh, outmaneuver you or something like that. In a conflict situation, how, how does it show up? So first of all, is it necessary to uh, narrate your inner state? And, and secondly, what about a conflict situation where someone is at odds with you? Sure. Uh, the first question, what's the narrate? Maybe I'm not understanding the accent. Narrate, as in uh, oh, describe. Ah, sorry, sorry, gotcha. I'm, I'm on a laptop speaker, so your accent <laughs> doesn't come through quite. Narrate, yes, yes. The narrate, first gotcha. narrate, yeah. So is it important to narrate the... Okay, so tell me, tell me the question again. You've said vulnerability is, first of all, willingness to feel uncomfortable and also to not know uh, something. 
Secondly, you, you've you've talked about uh, vulnerability as you telling your students that you're uncomfortable and you don't know what to say. Uh, gotcha. So these seem to be two yes. separate se separate things. Is it necessary to do that second step? Is that crucial to the process you've been uncovering? Um, yep. And then secondly, how does that second step in particular play out in say a conflict situation where revealing your hand, if you like, internally could disadvantage you yeah. in, in a situation with someone who has perhaps malicious intent towards you, if not now, then in the future? Great questions. Um, and actually, th these questions deeply center around my own experience, but I think where our, where our lab is headed in terms of how does mindfulness, uh, this compassion training stuff that we're talking about, empathy, um, integration, how does all this relate to self? Um, because really what we're talking about, and I think deeply Buddha's insight was that there's something fundamental about the self thing the thinging that attaches, you know, that attachment process and the way this, this stuff fleshes out causally in the system that's related to the discomfort and, 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 and suffering that emerges from the system as well. There's a relationship with these processes to the self. And when, when people study um, both compassion um, scientifically and they try to understand, you know, what is it? Uh, what is it that drives us to try to reduce the suffering of other people? And what's it like? One of the um, insights from the compassion science is that compassion is not what most people say it is. So you ask a person, what is compassion? Uh, what is vulnerability? What does it mean to do this? People will say compassion is, um, you know, this state of total deep peace, you know, peace. And they just imagine this Buddha, you know, sitting with a big fat belly and totally at peace. But when you test people and you make them act compassionately, what tends to happen is compassion is a state of threat. First of all, it's a physiological arousal of threat. So you get the threat centers activated. And that's because you have to deal with someone's negative emotion, <laughs> which is not comfortable for most of us, especially in the Western world. Um, so you actually get physiological arousal. Then you get what they call empathetic distress. And this is a really cool term. So you empathize, meaning you start simulating the other person's emotions, but it causes distress. <laughs> so it's the opposite of peace for most people, you know, at least in the lab. And then what happens is really interesting. If you get lost in that empathy, which actually a lot of people do, um, I have a couple of good friends who actually get lost in empathetic distress, you can spiral into inaction. Um, and this actually happens a lot to people who do um, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, for some reason. If you have an ego death, um, sometimes people get sucked into a hole of the suffering of the entire universe. <laughs> and may, many people out there probably have had this happen or know people. That's extreme empathetic distress. What's really important from the science is that you have to initiate self-other. So you have physiological arousal, you have empathetic distress, it's motivating the system to act. But the next step is you actually have to separate yourself from the other. And that's kind of counterintuitive maybe to a lot of contemplative practitioners because we talk about oneness and becoming one and all of that. But actually what the science is saying, and I think if you read like Thich Nhat Hanh and even some of the Dalai Lama stuff about compassion, what they'll say is like having the boundary between your suffering and the other is really important for acting for the other. And so something really sort of interesting happens in the neurological system when you do that self-other divide. 
you sort of get activated to do something to remove the suffering. And that's the part that leads to feeling good. So it's this like four-step process. You get activated, it's uncomfortable. That's where vulnerability comes in. Then you have emotional distress or empathetic distress because you're like, oh my God, this person's suffering. Then you have to, so where's me and where's them? And what can I do for them? Then you do the thing. So you kind of help the person, pick them up or whatever. And that's what actually leads to the good feeling, the, the sort of positive emotional stuff. And actually, if you have someone in an MRI scanner and you watch them go through this process in the scanner, you actually see positive emotional centers, the dopamine center actually activates when you act, not when you have empathy. If you just have empathy, you actually activate no emotion, actually, it's not positive or negative, but over time, if you just train empathy, you tend to lead to negative emotion, actually. So empathy training alone is not enough. You actually have to act. Um, and so the narr narrative piece for me comes in in step three. Step three is self-other distinction. And for me, the most important thing is just be vulnerable and tell the person, this is me. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I perceive you as feeling. And I think what that does is actually flips for the other person and flips them a bit into a compassionate type of uh, practice where they realize, oh, Jay is really busy. Jay's got a lot to do, but he is now being present with me. And oh, that feels good. It feels good to have someone who's in a higher position, who's very busy, like taking time out of their day to like give me something. Um, and so, I think it creates that self-other divide. And then what that helps each party do is figure out what do I do next? And, you know, true sort of the feel good of compassion actually comes from that step, which, which I love. Cause you know, when I even first approached compassion training, I was just like you, I thought, you know, vulnerability is weakness. Compassion actually is a little bit weak. You know, these compassionate hippie people on the West coast, at this point I was living on the East coast. So I thought those West coasters and California with their compassion, you know, they're just weak and they're not going to get anything done. I'm an East Coaster. I know how to like just plow through and get stuff done. And, you know, it's that, it's that step of like being vulnerable, doing the self-other distinction and then act. And, and it's the action step that you really have to get people to. So, yeah, I think the narrative step for me is just one of many potential ways to kind of create that self-other distinction. I'll give you one simple practice that, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting his name, a pretty famous researcher in the field, but he um, works with people who caretake for uh, cancer patients. So, you know, a spouse caretaking for their cancer husband. And uh, what he says to do is you put 95% of your attention on the person you're trying to help. And you put 5% of your attention on your left foot on the floor. Make sure your foot's on the floor. And what that does is it gives most of your mindful attention to the person so you can be with them, but it creates the self-other distinction because now you know where your foot is. And I think it's a beautiful practice, very simple to do. So, you know, to your question of conflict, it's, it's a great question and actually ties right into everything I think we've been talking about here today. Um, because of my position um, in the field that I'm in and also um, some of my experiences um, working with industry, you know, I've, I've interacted with some quite difficult personalities, uh, people that I love, but ha have some of the uh, sort of conflictual nature, which has helped them become so successful. And 
what I've learned um, about a lot of that is that this, this notion of compassion, this no notion of vulnerability, being able to mindfully hold the space is extra important in those types of situations. So where that conflict is coming in um, has really been important to actually turn more into that. Uh, which is hard for me because I'm actually a non-conflict person. I avoid conflict at all costs. And so, yeah, actually, you know, I, I have a lot to say on that because I think it ties right into to everything that we were talking about here. I know we're running out of time. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's a whole podcast. I don't know. That's a really oh, deep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds fabulous. I mean, th this arc you've described today and the aspect of it, which is this emerging into this vulnerability, as you've described it, and as a, a whole new relating strategy and its potency in those you lead, very interesting. But then the question of well, what about conflict? What about that kind of a situation? Surely vulnerability is a disadvantage there. But you're saying, no, actually, there's, there's something very powerful to discuss it's, there also. It's actually the superpower for those types of relationships, which was very hard for me because I'm such a non-conflictual, non-conflict per person. But that's actually the key you know, being vulnerable in the situation, in the one situation where you feel like you shouldn't be because you're going to get abused is actually what works. And yeah, I, I, I have lots of stories. I'd love to, yeah, maybe, oh, maybe great. dig yeah. into the next step. Okay, that, uh, it's going to have to be a trialogue. Not a trialogue. It's going to have to be a triptych. Yeah, it's a triptych. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to do another one. That's so wonderful, Jay. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you for your time and look forward to the next one. Dr. Thank Jay you. Sanguinetti, thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.